John Dahlberg was a 19th century British historian, politician, and writer, and a devoted Catholic. Although he was highly successful in his early schooling, he was denied admission to Cambridge University because his church affiliation didn't suit them. So instead, he went to Europe, where he studied history, the chronicles of events in the past, and the people who shaped them. Over time, his work led him to question how history was written, and in particular how the lives of people who had been powerful or successful were often covered with a positive halo. For example, despite being an ardent Catholic, he questioned how history treated popes, those who had led violent assaults on others they considered their enemies. They seemed to get a free pass under the pens of historians, and and that didn't sit well with Dahlberg. Dahlberg went on to have a successful career as a writer and a politician, eventually being appointed Lord Acton. But the question of how historians should treat men, because they were virtually all men back then, men who had enough power to control their own narrative, lingered for him. In the 1880s, he challenged Mandel Creighton, an Anglican bishop and historian, because he felt that Creighton was unwilling to write critically about the powerful. It was in the context of that correspondence that he made the remark he's best known for. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men, even when they exercise influence and not authority. I hadn't known Dahlberg's story, but his famous saying came to mind when I read the text that we will look at today. We'll come back to that in a minute, but first, some background for today, which in the church calendar is Christ the King Sunday. Many of us probably grew up in contexts where the church calendar was a wall calendar with pictures of churches that the local women's group sold as a fundraiser. But for the majority of Christian Christian worshippers around the world, it's something quite different. It's an annual retelling of the story of Jesus. The new year begins with Advent, the four weeks before Christmas. So you should actually wish each other Happy New Year next Sunday. Advent is perhaps not the coldest time of the winter, but it is certainly the darkest. It acknowledges that Jesus comes into the darkness of our brokenness and alienation and brings light. After the great celebration of Christmas comes Epiphany, honoring the Magi who visit the baby Jesus, but more broadly celebrating the expansion of God's saving work to include Gentiles. Then, the reflective season of Lent, leading to the celebration of Good Friday and Easter. Fifty days later, it's Pentecost, where we celebrate the giving of the Holy Spirit to Jesus' followers. Then, it's about six months of ordinary time, or what some like to call kingdom time, acknowledging that now through his spirit-filled church, Jesus is bringing his kingdom. The final event in the calendar is Christ the King Sunday, which is today. 
This day looks back to celebrate the fact that through his death and resurrection, Jesus has been confirmed as king. And it looks forward to the day when he will reappear and fully implement his kingdom. These traditions may not be everybody's cup of tea, but I find the church calendar really helpful. Here's why. I take great comfort in the fact that history is actually heading somewhere. That we are on a journey that has a destination. That we are not just aimlessly wandering around trying to do our best in a world that is ultimately meaningless. Maybe I'm like an annoying young kid on a car trip. I want to know, are we there yet? And if not, is there really a destination? Or is is it just my irritating brother's elbow in my side for hours and hours? In the church calendar and in history, we have been in ordinary time for a long time now. We look back to God's dramatic interventions at the first Christmas, Good Friday, and Easter. But we also look ahead with longing and hope to Jesus reappearing and setting all things right. That's what Christ the King Sunday encourages us to remember. Not surprisingly, the scripture readings that are assigned for this day focus on kingly authority and judgment. And it was one of those readings, a passage from the writings of the Hebrew prophet Ezekiel, that made me think of Lord Acton's observations about the corrupting effects of power. In today's reading from Ezekiel 34, the prophet has just delivered a diatribe against bad kings that the Jewish people have suffered under, men who were both powerful and corrupt. The prophet uses the metaphor of shepherds and says that these bad shepherds drink the milk, wear the wool, and butcher the best animals, but let their flocks starve. He says they have not taken care of the weak, tended the sick, or bound up the injured. They abandoned their flock and left them scattered and destitute. These kings were in a position of great power, but they used that power to enrich themselves and to exploit the poor. Walter Brueggemann, the leading American Old Testament scholar, makes no bones about seeing parallels between those kings and the people wielding power in contemporary society, the 1% who feed off the lives of the 99%, that their wealth allows them to gain power, and with the power they can tilt the tables in ways that make them even more wealthy. You can see why this made me think of Lord Acton's observation that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. A charismatic politician on the campaign trail, or even a bombastic one, can garner our loyalty and fuel our hope that they will bring change, the change that is so greatly needed. But if they are elected, they so often disappoint whether they were always manipulative and self-serving, or whether the grinding effects of the political machinery made them that way, they seem to show little commitment to the people who elected them. It can make one despondent or even cynical. 
whether you're in the present day with Lord Acton in 19th century Europe or with Ezekiel in the 6th century BC. It's into this bleak situation that Ezekiel brings his message of hope. Here's what he says. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself will search and find my sheep. I will be like a shepherd looking for his scattered flock. I will find my sheep and rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on that dark and cloudy day. I will bring them back home to their own land of Israel from among the peoples and nations. There they will lie down in pleasant places and feed in the lush pastures of the hills. I myself will tend my sheep and give them a place to lie down in peace, says the Sovereign Lord. I will search for my lost ones who strayed away, and I will bring them safely home again. I will bandage the injured and strengthen the weak, but I will destroy those who are fat and powerful. I will feed them, yes, feed them justice. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will surely judge between the fat sheep and the scrawny sheep. For you fat sheep pushed and butted and crowded my sick and hungry flock until you scattered them to distant lands. So I will rescue my flock, and they will no longer be abused. I will judge between one animal of the flock and another. And I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. He will feed them and be a shepherd to them. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be a prince among my people. I, the Lord, have spoken. This is obviously a passage rich in metaphor and vague on detail. Remember that the prophets are more about forthtelling than foretelling. They're not predicting the timing of future events. They weren't the guys in the early 1980s telling you to buy Apple stock when it went on the market. No, the biblical prophets were more about forthtelling, bravely articulating, setting forth God's perspective on the current situation. And when they did point to future events, as in this passage when Ezekiel promises a new kingdom under God's kingship, they didn't provide a detailed blueprint of the how and were completely silent on the when. Ezekiel is not giving instructions here to Jewish farmers on better agricultural practices. The shepherds and sheep are, of course, metaphors for the bad kings of Israel and the people who have suffered under their corrupt leadership. And with the hindsight the Christian readers are given, we know that Ezekiel's reference to a new King David is not a human political ruler on a throne in Jerusalem, but something more. But even without all the practical details of how and when, this passage offers a beautiful picture of the king and his kingdom. A few things to notice here. First, there is the welcome assurance that God will take the initiative to fix things. Under the bad shepherds, God's sheep have been scattered, wounded, and oppressed. But it isn't up to them to search out and find help. 
They aren't supposed to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. They aren't supposed to organize and appoint their own leaders. God takes the initiative to seek them out, lead, and rescue them. Time and distance are apparently not barriers. God will search out those who belong to God, no matter how far they have wandered, how far they have been driven, or how long it takes. It's here that I find the metaphor of the shepherd particularly instructive. For someone making their living as a shepherd, a single sheep may represent all or most of their profit margin. It takes the output from a lot of sheep just to cover their costs, so one lost sheep means potential financial disaster. The shepherd will look urgently and relentlessly to find the lost sheep. With the number of people on the planet, now almost 8 billion, it's easy to imagine that we are completely insignificant in God's eyes. But God says, I myself will search and find my sheep. I also note that the story of the lost and wounded sheep isn't used as a morality tale. We are not told that it was their fault, those weak sheep, that they ended up in this dire position. If only they'd made better life choices, they wouldn't be in this situation. It's pretty clear that Ezekiel sees them as far more sinned against than sinning. And he makes it clear that God's heart toward them is love and restoration, not judgment and rebuke. Well, I said this passage wasn't a morality tale, but it is a bit of a morality tale when it comes to the powerful elites, the fat cats, or fat sheep in this case. Ezekiel doesn't have such kind words for them. He says, For you fat sheep pushed and butted and crowded my sick and hungry flock until you scattered them to distant lands. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will surely judge between the fat sheep and the scrawny sheep. Recall that the context of the passage was a judgment on the bad shepherds, the bad kings of Israel. But now the judgment is extended to fat sheep, not rulers per se, but still those whose power and wealth allow them to exploit the weak. Ezekiel says that God as king will feed the scrawny sheep on good pasture, but will feed the fat sheep with justice. When we come to the New Testament, we see Jesus living out each of these themes. We see him providing food for the hungry, healing for the sick and injured, safety for the marginalized. We hear him teach a kind of restorative justice where the first will be last and the last will be first, what is sometimes called the upside-down ethic of his kingdom. And we hear his condemnation of those with religious power, those who had used their position to defraud the weak and who created rather than lifted burdens for them. So, on Christ the King Sunday, we read Ezekiel's vision for a time when the bad shepherds will be gone, justice will come, and God will be the king. We look back to Jesus in his earthly ministry and see that same ethic, and we look forward to his coming in glory, 
to fully implement his kingdom. The people that Ezekiel spoke to when he delivered his prophecy may or may not have found comfort in it. For those who were weak and oppressed, there would have been hope for a righteous king who would deliver them. But as their captivity in Babylon dragged on and on, they probably assumed it was hope for a future generation. It was nice to imagine that justice would come, but nothing was really going to change in their lifetime. And we may feel like that too as we wait, as we languish in ordinary time in the church calendar. We look back across the centuries to Jesus' earthly ministry and tell and retell those stories. And we await his return when he will come as Ezekiel's righteous king and set all things right. But it's likely going to be a future generation that will see that. Will anything really change in our time? As we look at Ezekiel's prophecy, we see a picture of the righteous king, a picture that we identify with Jesus. But I think Ezekiel paints for us not only a picture of the king, but also of his kingdom, a kingdom of justice and mutual flourishing. The early Christians knew that Jesus would return to judge and to reign, and they were eagerly awaiting that. But they had also been told that the kingdom was already among them, and they worked hard to make it visible. They didn't sit with their hands folded waiting for Jesus to reappear in glory. They lived lives of joyful generosity. They built communities of love and mutual flourishing, and they turned their world upside down. The priest at the Anglican Church I was part of in Toronto was once asked, what's the kingdom of God like? He said, it's like a village that Jesus has just passed through. Everyone has been well fed and the bounty has been shared. The sick have been healed, the marginalized have been honored and welcomed, and people have been given good news. Yes, we wait, and I don't want to minimize the importance of waiting for and praying for Jesus to bring the full expression of his kingdom. We wait, but we also work. We work to follow Jesus, follow him in the ways that he cared for the weak and hungry, the sick and marginalized. We may, like Lord Acton, despair of the political and financial elites of our time. The early Christians probably didn't think much of the Caesars either, but they weren't fussed about that because they already had a new and better king. And by following him, living and working in allegiance to him, they were transforming their commun- the communities they lived in. Here's how the disciples were described when they came to Thessalonica. These people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also. They are all acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor, saying that there is another king named Jesus. I'm going to close with the prayer for Christ the King Sunday from the Anglican Liturgy. Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things in your well-beloved Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords. 
Mercifully grant that the peoples of the earth divided and enslaved by sin may be freed and brought together under his most gracious rule, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and evermore. 